writing the next chapter of Canadian environmental history. I wonder, I'm thinking of how environmental historians relate to public policy and policymaking. A roundtable discussion with participants of the recent EH Plus workshop. I'm Sean Courage, and you're listening to episode 23 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the network in Canadian history and environment. At the end of April 2011, a group of more than 40 researchers in the fields of Canadian environmental history and historical geography met for an extraordinary workshop in Burlington, Ontario called EH Plus, Writing the Next Chapter of Canadian Environmental History, hosted by the Network in Canadian History and Environment and the Wilson Institute for Canadian History. All of the participants were required to write short, one-page statements on the field of environmental history and its future prospects. Those statements were then posted to the Network in Canadian History and Environment website and circulated in advance of the meeting. Over the course of two and a half days, participants met to discuss those statements, along with three commissioned papers. Those papers focused on three themes, the state of Canadian environmental history in Canada, the state of the field internationally, and the role of environmental history research in public policy formation. To follow up on the outcomes of that meeting last month, I sat down with some of the EH Plus participants for a roundtable conversation about future directions for Canadian environmental history. Hi, I'm Merle Massey. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the School for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Saskatchewan. And I'm Jay Young. I'm a PhD candidate uh, in history at York University in Toronto. I'm Claire Campbell. I'm an associate professor in history and Canadian studies at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Hey, I'm Josh McFadgen. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Western Ontario in the history department, coming to you from PEI at the moment. <laughs> Hi, this is Jim Clifford. I'm a recent PhD from York University, and I work for Niche. So I'm really pleased to have this uh, esteemed panel of participants who all attended the uh, EH Plus meeting in Burlington, Ontario uh, last weekend. And I want to just open up the conversation to the group and ask uh, uh, the group uh, what some of the main outcomes were from this meeting and what are some of the future directions of environmental uh, history or Canadian environmental history that you uh, saw come out of this meeting in Burlington. Maybe let's start with uh, Josh. Okay, um, well, I'm not sure how much you want me to go into the structure, but we had on Saturday two full workshops, morning and afternoon, where we looked at uh, two particular papers in detail, Stefan Castingay's in the morning and Dean Babington's in the afternoon, and so we had to respond pretty directly to those, and I don't know if you can still hear me, but, um, okay, I th- I. Th- found that the response was, was great to Stefan's paper in particular. Um, maybe it was just because it was the morning and people had more energy and were able to engage uh, better that way. But, um, but it, it was, it was uh, pretty well received, I think, by everybody there. Um, although we had some questions about, his was about the international um, effect of environmental history and, and of, I think, niche in particular, where some of the niche scholars had been publishing. Um, how widely it, the field it had been felt, and and I think he was looking sort of more broadly too at environmental history publications, mm-hmm. and I think that was a I think that was eye opening for some people to know that 
it did have this international approach, and then other people wanted it to have uh, a lot more. Particularly, Viv Nellis, who was the one of the organizers, just was really pushing us to to think sort of uh, internationally in terms of environmental history and how the field and the body of work that it that it produces can be uh, can have sort of a greater effect. So, so he was really, I think, pushing us to think hard about that. And but it was an engaging conversation. I'd go into the afternoon, but I'll let someone else pick up. Well, we've just been joined by Linnea Rollett as well, so uh, why don't we let Linnea uh, give us some of her thoughts on uh, future directions for Canadian environmental history that came out of this meeting. Hmm. Hi, Sean. Hi, everyone. Thanks for for, um, letting me join in. Um, Future directions for Canadian environmental history, that's such a good question. I think we identified uh, two clear projects, obviously, on the Sunday morning, Lyle's idea of adding the the Franklin ships to the Great Canadian Mysteries and Claire's idea of engaging internationally with a, an Atlantic Canada-based environmental history workshop or seminar for graduate students. I think both, both of those are wonderful ideas and, and I'm looking forward to seeing them happen. Well, why don't we let Claire pick up here then. Claire, can you tell us a little bit about what you saw at the meeting, uh, what you think the big outcomes were, and maybe a little bit about this uh, proposed project on uh, a summer school for graduate students connecting uh, Scandinavian countries to Canada? Yeah, um, I mean, more generally, the, what, where I saw sort of some of the big issues being discussed was uh, how organizationally the Canadian environmental history community is going to continue um, in the second half of Nisha's funding, and then after 2014, um, there's sort of there was some discussion about you know will we remain a distinctive um, but subsumed group in in ASCH, the American Society of Environmental History, and uh, or should we have our own journal? Should we have our own organization? Um, I mean, Nisha really has become the international face or international contact uh, for many of us or the portal into Canadian environmental history. And so the question is, how do we sustain the network and a lot of the projects that we have got going um, in, a, in a world possibly of, of less funding or a different, a different kind mm-hmm. of organization or leadership? So that for me was a really interesting question because it is, I mean, these things don't, they don't drop from heaven magically or you know show up like Easter eggs. So it's 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 something that I think we have to be particularly deliberate and conscious about. And it's it's something that for me, H plus was a really good, a well timed moment for us to get thinking about. All right, how do we create the second generation? The the project that um, what happened on the Sunday was that we broke into two groups. One prompted by the question of how do we connect the local to the national in Canadian environmental history, and the second one, how do we cr- connect the national to the international? And these two groups um, developed, I mean, certainly our group, the international group, developed about half a dozen different ideas. And then in what was uh, kind of a combination, I think I tweeted it as a combination of Cage Match on, and The Bachelor, um, <laughs> these were... Um, there was a sort of one or two that went forward from from each, I guess three that went forward from each group and then presented to the group as a whole. And my idea was based on the summer school that took place in Iceland in 2009 um, that was so many issues about energy, historical and contemporary, conventional and and what we would call alternate energy sources um, in Scandinavia and in Atlantic Canada wind and, and coal and oil and gas and all these kinds of questions, it would be really great to have an intense 
um, two-week summer school. And we, I was actually thinking for undergraduates to bring Scandinavian uh. and Canadian students together um, to sort of discuss Atlantic Canada's experience and some of the Scandinavian innovations, sort of the tracking energy movement across the North Atlantic. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think we're going to try for that for next summer, but uh, that's it's on my to-do list. And if listeners are interested in learning more about that uh, Iceland field trip, um, I'll link on the show notes to where they can get information about uh, the experience of those who participated in that event, I think a couple of years yeah. ago now. Um, yeah, Merle, yeah. what about for you as a, a new postdoctoral fellow, what what new directions for Canadian environmental history did you see come out of this meeting? Well, I think one of the big debates that that we spoke about all evening, and certainly when you take a look at how we split ourselves up on Sunday morning, we went, as as Claire said, from the local to the national, and, and one group had that uh, discussion, and then the other group had the discussion from the national to the international field. And one of the things I think that came out of the weekend was the idea of policy. Because as environmental historians, um, one of the things that we tend to wrestle with is how much advocacy we need to do. Do we need to do more? Should we do it only in our personal lives or through our professional lives and those sorts of things? And, and we'd all like, I think, to see our profile raised and, and our input valued within policy development. And one of the things that came out for me very clearly is that a key Carmen, I'm, easy, on, I'm on a Skype call, Carmen. And a key and easy way to do that is to... Is to those of us who engage in either local, regional, or, or urban environmental history, to be able to engage with policy development or, or uh, um, policy makers on, on those smaller levels and from there have it move forward. I think sometimes to, to just want to bash down the halls of Ottawa and try and get our voices mm-hmm. heard maybe would be a little bit of a, a more difficult way to do it. But we do have mm-hmm. the stature on a local level that I think we can exploit. That was one of the most interesting parts to come out of the discussion about environmental history's contribution to policy. I mean, we did have a bit of debate as to whether or not environmental historians should be engaging with trying to influence policy decisions. And many people seem to conclude that it was at the local level that Canadian environmental historians could make the greatest impact. Yeah, I definitely uh, came came away during the afternoon policy uh, discussion on the Saturday afternoon. That that was the one uh, thought that really stuck with me. That there was almost I don't know if I'd say a consensus, but that uh, it seemed most people felt their their research, uh, you know, their their public presentations, uh, etc., was most effective on the local level. Uh, I guess the sort of think think local uh, impacts global or something like that is what I took from it. Maybe beyond just saying. Sorry, Jim, go ahead. Beyond just saying on a local level, I I think one idea that that came out of Dean Babington's paper, in which I I don't think that there was universal consensus around, was was that we should engage with uh, helping grassroots organizations understand issues Mm -hmm. instead of trying to talk to the the powerful and the elite. So I, I think this was a you know, a point of debate, uh, depending on people's politics in the room, as to uh, precisely how history should be activated and, and made useful. Uh, some perhaps think that this isn't the historian's role at all. Others uh, would like to have a voice at at the uh, the higher political level. Well, as, you know, some people feel that maybe we should just engage with local groups. Uh, people trying to, to create change outside of government. Yeah, I was going to agree that, I mean, Dean's paper was a, a really um, 
I mean, it was really incisive and, and really it got me thinking about um, not wanting to be the handmaiden of, of the managerial state, mm-hmm. um, which is which is what he argues is, is tends to be where we feel like that's where we're supposed to be influencing policy. I, I certainly heard some voices in the room um, that while I agree that I think the majority felt, you know, this is this is our role as citizen scholars to mm-hmm. borrow a, a phrase that's been in the news lately. Um, there were some people who said we make a biggest impact by doing very good history, um, and so I, I think it was interesting to see that there wasn't there there is some debate in that. I think to to come back to Merle's initial point is one of the ongoing debates I think that's coming out of EH Plus and maybe hadn't been crystallized among us um, mm-hmm. as a community until this weekend. So, Linnea, you had an interesting proposal uh, related to this question about um, working with grassroots groups. Can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit more about that that idea that you proposed at the meeting? Well, the idea that came out of the subgroup um, questioning and considering the notion of historic, historic, historians' advocacy was to um, choose a topic and a locale where we could actually inform um, an ongoing debate or an ongoing issue. And so we were thinking about food security questions in northern Kingston, which um, is north of Princess, is apparently a um, lower income neighborhood, and um, they have very limited access to healthy food. They've lost resources, I think, in the in the medium term past. And given that there is so much um, food developments in the in the farming net in the farming community about uh, growing local, providing weekly food baskets for shares, shareholders. There are many different movements that we could actually talk about, as well as the history of that particular neighborhood and how things got to be the way they are so that local citizens could advocate for themselves. We would just be basically informing the issue. So in addition to talking about what influence Canadian environmental historians may have on policy, we also talked about the place of environmental history within Canadian historiography. And I wanted to get some thoughts from the panel here on where they saw uh, Canadian environmental history within the discipline of Canadian history itself. Maybe we can start with uh, uh, Jay. Sure. Uh, well, you know, I, I for our, well, I guess I'll start by saying one of the things I thought made EH Plus work so well as a workshop was uh, the statements that we all made. Mm. Uh, and that's my way to lead in to say about my opinions on environmental history in the Canadian field is that my, my own statement talked about how, you know, as a young grad student uh, starting my PhD about five years ago, I, I, I had very little knowledge of environmental history whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, you know, being exposed through it through their grad students and, and then also then through niche that um, I think I'm an example that, you know, there are people who study topics that might not be deemed traditionally environmental, such as the subway, which I study, yet I incorporate environmental history uh, very much in the dissertation. So I think, I think, you know, with EH Plus being somewhat of a, a looking back at the last 10 years, I think that it has made an impact um, on, on, you know, uh, the field in general of Canadian history. However, uh, you know, for example, the, the survey course that I'm mm-hmm. a TA in uh, at York, environmental history is not, not discussed whatsoever, right? So I think in terms of teaching, especially something like a Canadian survey course, uh, in terms of increasing the popularity of environmental history within the Canadian field, you know, I think, for example, getting into the survey courses would be, would be something that, that would be helpful. Josh, what did you find uh, on this? Well, I think that's an interesting point that Jay brought up because 
said I was, you know, starting graduate studies and looking to niche for for a lot of different resources. But and, and so I think in the larger historiography, niche has been more important to new scholars than I think it even gives itself credit for. Mm -hmm. I can say that, and um, I think we're all sort of new scholars here. Certainly, Claire, you you uh, you've talked about this being niche is being important to you for like the last five years. So you certainly were at the start if you aren't now. But I think we're all sort of new in our. Is that your way of telling me that I'm not a new scholar, Josh? Is that where that was going? I think, I think you. I think you've told me in other conversations that you technically qualify as a as an advanced scholar now. But um, I'm going to call you a new scholar for the purposes of this talk. And I'm going to say, <laughs> before I get myself in any more trouble here, that that there's people calling themselves and the work they do environmental history now that wouldn't have five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, Main, and, and probably especially new scholars. I mm -hmm. count myself in there because I wouldn't have called what I do environmental history, and maybe Jay would say the same five mm -hmm. years ago. So, I mean, that is one very large contribution right there to the field. That's, and to that's the, something... Go ahead. Sorry, I just want to jump in here. Um, that's something that actually did come up over the course of the weekend, particularly the connections between environmental history and historical geography, which was a theme that, that came up... Well, mostly in how people chose to, to speak. They'd say environmental historian slash historical geographer. And, and uh, I went back and I read Robert Summersby paper about the, the connections between the two and are these parallel paths and how many things do we have to say to each other. And so that's something that, that perhaps someone else wants to jump in and pick up. But to go back to the idea of bringing in more environmental history into those big first-year lectureship sort of Canadian history courses, one of the practical things that we can perhaps do within our own universities is to offer our services as guest lecturers uh, into someone else's and sort of parachute into other people's classes because that might be a specific way for us to show what we can do and to show the students what environmental history is all about. So that's just a practical idea. And I think it's something that uh, new scholars can do particularly effectively if you are still TAs or don't have your own courses. I think it's it's a great way to sort of build up your teaching dossier and and infect um, the, the <laughs> curriculum for sure. Mm -hmm. So what about uh, topics of study? I'm not sure that this really came up in great depth, but did anybody get a sense of um, what directions environmental history researchers should be pursuing in terms of topics of study? Uh, there was a little bit of, of conversation about uh, histories of climate change, uh, histories of other sort of topical or relevant environmental crises that environmental historians should pursue. Did anybody pick that up at the meeting? Uh, uh, Viv Nellis asked the question, what, what makes Canada interesting to other nations? This is his way of kind of uh, getting us to think about, about sort of subjects we can study in terms of its international relevance. And I, and I think there there was kind of this element of, of exceptionalism, yet, yet uh, Canada being, of course, a part of so many larger international uh, movements. So, you know, the ideas over, uh, I, I was particularly interested in ideas over sort of resource uh, uh, flows. Um, particularly mm -hmm. sort of, with, I think, with energy and with the, with the tar, tar sands as being, uh, you know, I don't think too many explicit subjects were mentioned, but I think there were sort of some ideas floating around there. And, and I thought certainly resource expo exploitation, which, which um, you know, goes long into our historiography in English Canada, um, but is a really uh, probably a great opportunity to, to advance the field.
Mm-hmm. Mm. And which was the subject of Andrew Nikiforok's talk, which was very inspiring, but we seem to have taken the messages out of his talk into questions of social advocacy or, you know, what is our role as historians as opposed to looking at specifically what he did, which is to examine the growth and influence of the tar sands in the country. Mm-hmm. I was pleased to see in a couple of the statements uh, people calling for more research in urban environmental history, just for my own selfish purposes. Uh, were there any other topics that stood out uh, to people from the meeting? Well, again, that seemed like one of the, the main debates that, that came out uh, beyond the debate as to whether there's enough debate in environmental history. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. One of the main debates that came out is should we uh, continue doing what, what many of us do, which is uh, very focused micro histories of uh, a particular park in Vancouver or a subway system <laughs> or a, a, an unheard of river in, in East London or should we start writing uh, regional, national, transnational, global histories that somehow connect uh, Canada as a whole uh, with much bigger developments in, in the global environment and I wonder- again I think this is one that we didn't uh, we didn't come to terms with, and, and maybe it will be a, an ongoing point of debate from the years ahead. I, think I wonder on the issue of topics, sir, if I can jump in, that if there's... I wonder, I'm thinking of how environmental historians relate to public policy and policymaking, and you know, this is something that Merle touched on just briefly, and I like, she thinks like a postdoc, it's great. She just mentioned we should offer our services as... Uh, <laughs> as lecturers and I think at one point during the Saturday afternoon you said that we should get together as new scholars or maybe sort of pre-tenure track scholars and 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 offer sort of history for hire and I, I think that that was kind of shot down too quickly and in some ways I wonder if there's topics that that uh, that are important to other groups outside of just the academic circles that need to be Sort of done. And I don't oh, know Josh, you're straying into advocacy, advocacy fields. <laughs> <laughs> well, this this is, this goes to the question: Why do we choose to write on what we write about? And is it in in a lot of ways, it's sort of uh, maybe a subconscious, or or maybe a very um, deliberate survey of what's important to people around us at the at the point yeah. at the point in time yeah. when we decide Actually, to do what we do. Yeah, and so, for instance, I, that's why I chose biomass energy right now because I think that it's gonna, you know, it's gonna have, um, you know, a little bit of, uh, it's gonna have a little currency in in maybe somebody else's work, and that could be academic or it might not be, right? So I'm wondering if niche is is gets phone calls or by by you know groups, and well, if there's any way to know, because yeah, often yeah, we choose our topics because of what a supervisor says that that would be important, but there could be other. Um, Perhaps it's to get involved, though, in your community's issues. I mean, I've just been personally invited Mm -hmm. to do an oral history of my neighborhood's relationship with its oak trees, which are sort of under assault from developers. Mm -hmm. And the the, the group that's trying to preserve the oak trees wants to show how important the trees are to the community. And that came out of basically my involvement with my, my own neighborhood. So if we're looking for... If we decide to, which I couldn't agree with more, looking for for hungry hungry knowledge seekers from so, you know the, the great for an audience, looking for an audience, um, maybe it's that we have to put ourselves out there a bit. Maybe I can intervene I think- at this okay. point and uh, ask the group to shift gears a little bit to pick up on what uh, something Claire had mentioned at the beginning, uh, which was the future of niche. Um, 
its funding uh, comes to an end in 2014, I believe, and we did have some conversation about some of the core functions of Niche. So I wondered if Claire or Jim uh, could talk a little bit about uh, what some of those core functions are that people wanted to see continue post-2014. Well, that was a discussion group that I was on, on I guess, Saturday afternoon, and uh, it was interesting because... Um, Things like, I mean, you could argue it's something like what you're doing right now. Um, this podcast, Sean, is quite a brilliant innovation because it's um, relatively inexpensive and it is nationwide, right? And it can mm -hmm. reach an international audience. So it's precisely the kind of thing that's fairly easy to keep if you imagine a niche with reduced funding. Mm -hmm. And yet what people felt very strongly about was that it was things face-to-face um, -face and on the ground where we had... Um, uh, a particular, a really intense impact so that there will be fewer people who can go to someplace like EH Plus or Chess, the summer schools, um, than could listen to a podcast. And yet the, the proportional impact of something where you're putting people in a new place to explore environmental issues, I mean, that's, that's the sort of, that's the real thing about doing environmental history is you need mm -hmm. to be out there. Um, and so there was that, that tension in, in how do we, uh, where do we look for funding to continue those kinds of things? And so there was some discussion about where in the new short funding we could look, whether there could be funding um, from private foundations, mm -hmm. um, because this kind of thing, speaking to Canadians about environmental meaning, um, should sell very well. And so it was interesting to see the, the sort of the passionate defense of face-to-face face-to-face meetings and symposia and conferences and stuff to, to keep that after mm -hmm. 2014. Absolutely. Um, Jim, from your position as a project coordinator for Niche, what have you seen as some of the most uh, valuable services that the organization provides? Well, as many of you know, we did a membership survey about a month ago, and we're uh, slowly working our way through all the, the uh, many hundreds of responses uh, one of the questions asked this directly in, in a general sense I've got is that, that people really want the website and, and the various uh, digital resources to be maintained. And uh, people really want to see a way to, to keep chess, which is the annual summer school that Nisha's been hosting. Mm -hmm. uh, so that really speaks to uh, what Claire was discussing, is the need to uh, continue to have face-to-face -face interaction. That's really what's built up so much of the strength that that going to an event like EH Plus is like uh, seeing old friends in many cases because we've uh, met each other over the past five years. Uh, obviously, the website's going to be easier to uh, find funding for than something as expensive as chess. So this is the, the big challenge in the years ahead to, to find a, a, a new model to keep the really strong aspects of Niche alive. Well, maybe Just it's... Uh, sorry, go ahead, Merle. No, I was just thinking that one of the things that, that I've noticed that the niche website and, and sort of the niche name has really been snowballing over the last six months. And I know I made the point this weekend, and a, and a lot of people in the room agreed with me, and there was a lot of agreement. But I think that the more that we continue to do and the more that we continue to speak to each other, we coalesce more as a group. And then we take that message, I know I sound like a political campaign, which given what just happened this week, well, maybe, maybe we, exactly, look what happened to the NDP, right? Everybody kind of knew they were there, and then all of a sudden, wham, we have really huge 
public presence. And I think that once we have that really big public presence, that's going to make it a lot easier for us to go out and look for or, or request funding. So I think that some of the strengths of what we're doing is simply what we've been doing and to watch it snowball and keep it rolling, that enthusiasm going. So what? does Alan McEachern have to grow a mustache? Is that <laughs> <laughs> what is a good idea. <laughs> beard, beard. Well, I think that's a, a good place to, to put a pin in this conversation and maybe ask our <laughs> listeners uh, if they have ideas about future directions for Canadian environmental history or uh, what the future of NIE should look like post-2014 to post their comments to the show notes for this episode. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for participating on this panel. Thank you, Linnea, Josh, Jay, Jim, Claire, and Merle. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Sean. No problem. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Networking Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Merle Massey, Josh McFadgen, Jim Clifford, Linnea Rowlett, Claire Campbell, Jay Young, and me, Sean Courage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show note page at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave us comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast, and don't forget to rate this podcast and write a short review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. If you've got an idea for a new episode or you want to send me some feedback, you can contact me through my website at seancourage.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org, and you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. This is our last episode before the summer break. We'll be back in September with more monthly episodes of Nature's Past. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in the fall.